Yeah, so like I just prayed, um, we are finishing out the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We've been working through Ecclesiastes for a while now. It's been, at least for me, really personally helpful. Guys, it's, it's, reading this book is a privilege because here's essentially what happening is, is Solomon, who is the, the wisest person who's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, who was an incredibly uh, powerful man with a ton of life experience, has essentially been observing life and asking the question, what is the meaning of life? And then he's written down his reflections for us so that we can understand what this life is about. All right, and he's getting to the end of his life here and he's getting to his concluding comments. We're finishing up the book. He's getting to his concluding comments about the purpose of life and we get to listen into the sage tell us what the meaning of life is. You guys remember those beer commercials with the most interesting man in the world back in the day? Well, do you remember commercials? We don't really watch commercials anymore because we just stream stuff. So one, remember commercials. Two, do you remember the beer commercials with the most interesting man in the world? Okay, picture that guy old, sitting in a rocking chair, and we're all sitting around his feet, all right? And he's telling us stories from this crazy life that he's been living, and we get to just ask him questions about all the things that, that he's done, right? And so, so this guy has traveled the world, all right? He's stood in the Sistine Chapel. He's rode camels in the Arabian Desert, all right? He's been through wars. He's been in love and fallen out of love. He uh, has, has made money and had riches. He's pretty much done everything you could possibly imagine in life, and we're looking at him and saying, hey, how do, I, how do I live an interesting life? And then he just laughs and says, oh, I remember when I thought life was about living an interesting life. Or, or hey, you made a bunch of money. How, how do I go about that? What are some, some of your keys to, to money or to success in life? And he just laughs and he's like, oh yeah, I remember when I thought that was important to you. And he goes through and repeatedly keeps saying, oh yeah, I remember when I thought that was important. Or, oh yeah, I remember when I thought life was about that. And he hits every single one of our hearts, every single one of our passions that we tend to think life is about. And he just laughs and he says, oh yeah, life isn't about that. All right, so that's essentially what's happening here with Solomon. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 the, the first half of the verse, this is what he says. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Okay. So he's saying, all of these reflections that I've been giving you throughout this book and throughout my life, I'm about to give you the end of the matter. So, so the culmination of all of these things that I've studied about life, I'm about to tell you what they're all about. I want to tell you about the meaning of life. And he's essentially put life on trial. And he's collected the evidence throughout his life. He's given his life to discovering the meaning of life. And he's collected all of the evidence and all of the, the papers and the testimony is around him. And he now is the judge about to give us the verdict on the purpose of our lives. Now, this obviously is a high point in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in fact, all of Ecclesiastes has to be interpreted through what he's about to say. But think about what the message of Ecclesiastes is. The message of Ecclesiastes is about the meaning of life. So this is not just a high point in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the high point of your life because this is explaining what the very purpose and essence and meaning of your life is that everything that you've done, everything that you felt, everything that you've believed rises and falls on whether it's in alignment with what he's about to say. All right, so here's the second half of verse 13. The end of the matter, all that's been heard, fear God and keep his commandments 
for this is the whole duty of man. What a staggering statement. This is the whole duty of man. This is everything that you need to know about the purpose of life. This is the everything that you need to know in order to do marriage well, in order to do friendship well, in order to do money well, in order to do happiness, in order to figure out purpose in your life. Every single aspect of your life filters back through this basic sandwich. You can't, basic sandwich, this is what, okay, let me just explain what happened. This basic statement, what I was about to say and just ruined it, is you can't even eat a sandwich correctly without understanding this. This literally every Everything comes back to this. All right, let me be a little blunt with you. Okay, not just for the sake of being blunt because it's too important. If I were to ask your friends and family, the people that know you best, and I were to ask them, what is the purpose of your life? Like if I were to ask them what you naturally find yourself, t- yourself talking about, if I were to ask what you are most passionate about, what you study, what you give your life to, would they say something along the lines of fear God and obey his commands? Because if they wouldn't say that, you likely are wasting your life. Now here's the reality, is even if that is true, We still have an opportunity in this life to repent and to come back to the thing that we were made for. And God reveals himself in this text as the shepherd who wants to teach you how to live life well. And so there's still hope, but in order for us to to come to him with that hope and to learn from him how we should be living, we have to recognize the weightiness of what he's saying and identify if we've actually missed the primary purpose of our lives. And I mentioned equipping earlier. That's actually what I would like to do in equipping. I, I think a lot of us tend to think that if we show up on church on Sundays, And if we're maybe regularly attending or even periodically attending a connection group, maybe reading our Bible here and there, then we're living in what it means to be a Christian, then we're disciples of Jesus. But what we have to understand is that's the starting point of discipleship to Jesus. He wants to renovate your entire life. And so we want to offer as a church what it would look like to renovate our entire lives by the grace of Jesus. And so obviously we We can't do all of that at once, but we want to start to take steps towards there as a church. And those are some of the things that are coming. But here's the the essence of that life again, is that we've got to obey his commands and we've got to fear the Lord. So I want to start with obeying his commands. Let's focus in on what that would look like. Look at verse 10 and 11. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. Okay, so I want you to pay attention to the end of both of those sentences. So it says that that he uprightly wrote words of truth. So there's a claim that what he's saying here is not just some wise sayings that you should pay attention to if you feel like it, but they're absolute truth. And then the next sentence, they are given by one shepherd. So these words of wisdom that Solomon is talking about is given by the one shepherd, God himself. They're the very words of God. And so this is what's happening here with Solomon is that he's claiming that these wise words that he's given us in Ecclesiastes are not just some nice sayings, but they're the very words of God that they're scripture itself. And so this section that he's talking about here, 
applies not only to Ecclesiastes, but to the Bible as a whole, to the very words of God. He's going to instruct us on the commands of God, the words of God, and how we should have relationship with them. And this is what's true is when we encounter the words of God rightly, they transform our behavior and they transform our mind. And there's an analogy that Solomon gives for each of those two things. So let's start with this. They transform our behavior. So in verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. Okay, so that's a weird word that we don't use very often. So think of like a cattle prod. So essentially what a goad was, was a long stick with a pointy end. And they would use it on oxen. And when the oxen would turn away from the path, then the farmer would essentially poke the oxen and it would hurt a little bit, but it would re-guide the ox to the correct path. And what he's saying is, is that scripture is like that. That when we get off the path of God, what scripture does is it pokes us and it hurts a little bit, but it's good in the end because it redirects us to the appropriate way of living. Now there's, a, I think, a common misconception about human nature. Is it's easy to think that human beings in general, and you in particular, are basically good and then periodically bad. That on the whole, you're a pretty decent person trying to do the right thing, but periodically you mess up. But here's the reality is the nature of human beings is fundamentally flawed. We're like cars that are out of alignment. And if you let go of the steering wheel, we're going to end up the dit in the ditch really quickly. And so we need to be redirected to the appropriate path or we will naturally drift off of it. And so what scripture does is it redirects our course and it's painful but it's good. And, and the reality is, is that that is what the word of God inevitably does, is it redirects you. And so if you're not actually being redirected in your life to live differently, if you're not feeling that, that painful prick of the word of God in your life, when, when you're convicted by it and challenged by it and then changing to come into conformity of it, then you're not actually encountering the word. The word. So it's possible to read the Bible, but actually not be encountering the Bible. That's the same thing that happened to the Pharisees is they, they knew the word in their minds, but their lives weren't being transformed by it. And that same thing might be happening to you where you're reading the Bible regularly, but it isn't transforming you. You're not allowing yourself to sit underneath of its authority. Your life should be filtered through the word of God, but you tend to filter the word of God through your life. It needs to redirect your course. So it should be changing your behavior, the way that you live. But not only that, the word of God also changes your mind, changes your mind. That's the analogy about the firmly fixed nails. All right, so all of us have what's called a worldview, which a worldview is the, the baseline set of beliefs and assumptions about the world that impact the way that we live. They're the things that inform what we believe to be true. But not only that, not just abstractly what we believe to be true, but our worldview informs where our hope is. The things that we care about, that we're passionate about, how we live is informed by our worldview. But here's the problem is we can tend to build our worldview on things that are not solid, on things that are not scripture, and, and we come to truth or to opinions about the world 
with that worldview in place and we can form reality into what we already believe. So Zach Eswine put it like this. Everyone's temptation is to partially select data to prove their own point of view. Can you catch yourself doing that right now? Do you see other people doing that in culture as we have these these really heated discussions within culture about what's true and what's not true and about the way that we should live, isn't your tendency to have preconceived notions about what's true and good in the world and then to find evidence to support your viewpoint, but when you're confronted with evidence that might be a little bit different than yours, you tend to not listen to it because you've already decided what's true. Or maybe you're trying to look to the world to find evidence about what's true and how you should live and you're just really confused. And, and maybe you can't figure out what truth is. Like if you had this experience where like, it, it feels like we should know what's true or not true about COVID by now, but it just, for some reason, a disease got political and there's these different takes that are almost exactly opposite about what we should be doing and what we, uh, what we should be thinking about how bad it is and how we should be handling it. And it's hard to figure out what's actually true because it depends entirely on your source. And so listen to this quote. Sometimes the sheer number of conflicting voices causes us to quit on the idea that anything true exists or that if it does, we can find it. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're trying to honestly pursue what's true in life and how you should live, but you get overwhelmed by all of these conflicting viewpoints about what's true and what's good. And so you kind of bail on the pursuit altogether. Well, here's the answer, the word of God. The word of God is like a firmly fixed nail. Here's what I think this is referring to in Ecclesiastes is essentially like a coat hook that you would hammer a nail into a wall or a tree or something like that and then you could hang something from it. And as long as it's secure, it will hold up your coat or maybe it was referring to setting up a tent, but either way, it's the same baseline premise that that if it's the nail is secure, it will hold up whatever you hang on it. But if you've ever tried to hang a nail like, pounding it into some drywall without an anchor or something like that. It's too loose and you can't hold something on it. And so it's saying everything else is like a loose nail, but scripture is like the firmly fixed nail that you can hang your life on. But you've got to pay attention because you'll be tempted to hang your life on something that isn't the Bible. So a cultural movement or or a political idea or some novel interpretation of the Bible that just conveniently confirms everything that you already believed already, even though Christians historically have not ever interpreted the Bible that way, you'll be tempted to hang your life and your morality and your truth on those things, but they're, they're not secure. And you might be saying, well, I don't rely on that stuff. The Bible is my authority. Okay. Well, when you go to figure out what someone believes, it's not important what they say, it's important what they do. That's actually, actually how you know what a person actually believes. So let's go back to asking your friends and family about how you live. If I were to get a look into your life, what would I conclude is true about you and the centrality of the Bible to your life? If I were to look at how you lived, would it align with what's there in scripture? Would the Bible, the word of God, be the authority of your life? What about the, just the sheer amount of time that you spend in the word and how much you value it, how much you meditate on it, how much you memorize it? By what you do, could we conclude that scripture is central to who you are as a human being? And, and look, there's so much at stake here. 
Like let's, let's take the analogy up a notch because the consequences of you not laying your life on the foundation of the word of God is not just that a coat falls off of the wall. It, your very life is hanging off of it. All right, so let's take the, the analogy up a notch. You are rock climbing off of a sheer face that if you fall off of it, you'll die. So if that is the case, you're gonna make darn sure that your anchor at the top is secure. But if you're basing what you believe to be true about the world on your own moral instincts or what your friends are saying or what culture is saying or the recent hot take, it's like throwing a rope in some loose gravel and calling it good. The stakes are so high. Found your life on the word of God. Okay, so that's obeying God's commands. But the next step is fearing the Lord. So what does it look like to fear the Lord? Well, it relates to judgment. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. Now I do want to point out how this is good news. Because here's what this is saying, as at the end of the day, evil does not win. All right, so throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been frustrated that it seems like people who live in an evil way receive the same circumstances and the same reward than good people. It seems like in this life under the sun that evil wins. But here's what God is saying. That this life under the sun is not all that there is. And that the, the end of all things, God will call everything into account and evil will not win. He will bring justice and goodness to the earth. And that's a really great thing. And honestly, this is something that our culture is getting right right now. There's a call right now for justice. There's a, a hatred towards inequality and injustice, things that God hates. And there's a call in the world for us to be better, to look more like God, to do good. And that's a beautiful thing. But Jesus was the originator of justice. That's a Jesus thing first and foremost. And it's God's heart and he is the one that will bring everything to justice. And we should care about that heart the way that he does. But here's the problem that some of us have. Is that it's really easy for us to declare ourselves as the judge and to cry out for justice in the world. But never recognize that we also might come under judgment too. So it's, it's really easy to vindicate ourselves and to point fingers at someone else who is doing something wrong, but not recognize the things in our own lives that we're doing wrong that will be called into judgment. And Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 reminded me of Revelation 20. Revelation 20 is a look into the future, into the end of all things. And, and listen to this. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. One day life under the sun will end and life beyond the sun will begin. And we will stand before the throne. And we will look on the one who is the essence of all power and goodness. And he will redefine goodness in that moment. Have you ever come up against someone when you thought you were good at something and then found someone who was better than you? You thought you were really smart until you sat next to a genius in class. You thought you were good at basketball until you get dunked on, right? You, you find someone who's actually good at it and you realize how insignificant your apparent goodness was. That is only a taste of what will happen on that day when we stand before God, the essence and author of goodness, the best person who's ever lived on this planet, whether it's Mother Teresa or whatever, their goodness will look laughable in comparison to the goodness of God. He will redefine goodness on that day and look back at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. If the sky and earth run from the power and goodness of God in fear, what do you think you will want to do on that day? But the reality is, there will be nowhere to go. It'll be too late in that moment. And guys, this is what the fear of God means. Now let me clarify, it's, it's not a fear of someone who will do wrong, who will be unjust, of someone who will fly off the handle in anger and treat you poorly. No, it's the fear of a perfect person when you're an imperfect being. When you see the gap between your attempts at goodness and his ultimate goodness, his complete and rich righteousness and our taintedness, that's called the fear of the Lord. So, my wife was talking about a story recently from her senior year. And uh, one of the only like rebellious things that she's ever done in her life is she was a part of a senior prank. So I actually didn't do the senior prank thing. Probably a lot of you do can relate to it. She was, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was pretty simple, you know, kind of the classic. They were, they were TPing the, the road leading up to the high school and they came in a getaway van in case something happened, and sure enough, it did happen. The cops rolled up, turned on the lights, and they all saw the lights, and they couldn't get to the van, and so they actually just scattered. And so now these seniors, including my wife, is running through, like, backyards to try and get away from the police. I'm not necessarily recommending this, case, you know, and I also asked her that I could tell this story, all right? It was, it was fine. And, uh, but here's the reality. They got away with it because there were so many of them and it was dark that they could hide behind the anonymity of the moment, right? And so they got away with it. Nobody knew. But imagine that you were there that day, all right? You run through the backyards and then you go into school the next day and you get called into the principal's office. And you go with your friend and you're planning the whole way. You're like, there's no way they can know it was me. I, they're, they're not gonna know that I was there. And you're planning your alibi, right? So you get your friend to say, yeah, I was hanging out. We were, we were just at home. We weren't doing anything. And you walk into the principal's office and, and you start your excuses and your alibis and all this. And you're kind of going through your ramp. And then the principal doesn't, doesn't accuse you, doesn't argue with you, but just slides an iPad across the table. 
and pushes play on a video. And it's a video of you throwing toilet paper over a tree. And then it zooms in on your license plate and then on your face. Okay, at that point, there's no more arguments to be made. (laughs) What are you saying? You're saying, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do to me? And you just have to accept your, your punishment because there's no more arguing with the simple fact of what was true of your life. Okay, here's the reality, is God sees and knows everything that has ever happened in the history of the world. And not only our behaviors, but our motivations, our actions. He sees everything that's happening, not only externally, but internally. And on that day, he won't have to get in a discussion or an argument with us about the relative merits of how we lived. He can just figuratively slide across the table the video of us living and how we've felt. And it will be a completely just and fair way of judging how we've lived by simply the actions of our lives. And none of us will have an argument for the way that we've lived. I was imagining that this morning. And it's unbelievably weighty what that will be like to be exposed in the presence of ultimate goodness and power. And I'm not even talking about the bad things I've done. I'm talking about the best things that I've ever done in my life. How unbelievably inadequate that will look in that moment. And so here's the reality, our hope in that moment. So, so let's say you agree with that. You acknowledge that that's the reality that's coming for all of us. And let's say that you wanna try and solve that problem by living perfectly throughout the rest of your life so that when God opens the books of the records of your deeds, that it will show all of the good things that you've done. Let's say in theory, that's the reality and, and that you hypothetically could do that, which you can't. You still can't erase everything that's ever gone wrong in your life there's still that record on your life. And so the solution is not to try to write a different story in your book, but the solution is to get a different type of book. And that's what we see there is God refers to the book of life. Some, the books of their deeds will be open in front of them, but for some, the book of life will be open in front of them. And here's the book of life. Yes, it's a record of the moral good deeds of a person, but it's not your record in the book of life is the perfect and ultimate record of Jesus Christ. The ultimate level of goodness lived throughout humanity is recorded in the book of life, but instead of his name on it, your name is on it. Instead of him receiving credit for it, you receive credit for it. This is the unbelievable exchange within Christianity is that you give Jesus your badness, your faults, your sins, your separation from God, and he takes it on on the cross. And then he gives you his utter perfection, not just that your sins are erased, but that his absolute perfect moral goodness is placed on your life so that there's no shame or guilt left for you. And you stand on his moral goodness. And on that day, Jesus will stand by your side and he will advocate for you before the Father if you've trusted in him. That's your only hope on that last day. Now, you might be thinking, doesn't that create the opposite thing that Ecclesiastes was arguing for? So wasn't Ecclesiastes arguing that the way that you live now matters because you'll be judged for it someday? And doesn't the idea that someone else will stand in your place kind of erase that idea that what you do now matters? No, absolutely not. 
Because when you get the reality of that story, the utter goodness of Jesus Christ standing in your place, the only possible response to that would be to obey his commands and to fear him out of absolute joy of the goodness of his character and the opportunity to live life with him. And and if that's not the response in your heart, then you haven't gotten the story because that's the only thing that that story could possibly do in you. And think about it. What makes heaven, heaven? It's that God is there and you have the opportunity to live life with God. But, but in addition to that, it, it, heaven will be heaven because people will live God-fearing and good lives. They will live the way that he commanded them to live and that's why it will be such an amazing place. Eden was Eden before the fall because people actually lived in accordance to the way that God had planned for them to live and heaven will be heaven one day because people will actually live under the reign and authority of God and they will be like Jesus. And so if that is the hope that we have, the beautiful expectation that we have coming our way, why would we not live that way now in his power? He he offers you little tastes and access to heaven now by his spirit if you fear the Lord and obey his commands. And as we inevitably stumble and fall in that effort, he's not only the judge, but he identifies himself in Ecclesiastes 12 as the shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? Lovingly guides his sheep into the right direction. So I actually want to end on this. This is a quote from Zach Eswine who wrote the, the commentary that I've been working through in Ecclesiastes. And this is how he ends that commentary. This is how I want to end the book of Ecclesiastes, thinking about God as shepherd. This shepherd is the Lord, the want provider, the rest giver, the pasture, pasture and path leader in the soul restorer. He's the valley walker, the with me overcomer and comforter, the table preparer, the head anointer, the cup filler, the goodness and mercy sender, the house dweller and the forever, all the days of my life secure. Jesus, the son of David, the king, he comes into the wreckage under the sun. He's the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. He will lay down his life for them here in this vain world. The one shepherd, the one greater than Solomon, he has come. The memory of Eden recovers. The promise of heaven awaits. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the promise of heaven awaits. That we all will one day stand before you, the good judge. And that for those of us who have trusted Jesus, that we don't have to be afraid. That that we fear you. We have this this awe-filled respect of your power and your goodness and the gap between us and you. But we don't have to be afraid of punishment because of you advocating for us, Jesus. And we're so thankful for that. And I pray for people who don't have that hope. Would you make them that clear to them right now? God, would you reveal that to them? Help them to be honest about the state of their life, the things that they're living for. Help all of us to be honest about all the dumb ways that we're living, the purposeless ways that we're living. Help us to come back to the meaningful life of obeying you and fearing you. Teach us, God, how to live now to not only hope for the day that we get to be with you and that we'll be made perfect in your presence, but to start 
moving in that direction now, to live differently now by your power. And even when we're imperfect, we trust your goodness and your mercy over our lives. Thank you that you have not held our sins against us, that you are the shepherd who guides us, the silly sheep, that, that you guide us back onto the path Teach us how to walk in accordance with your ways because we want to live good lives and that is the best possible life. God, help us not to move on from the truths that we've learned in Ecclesiastes and just kind of turn the page on the book and forget about all the things that we've learned, but would you transform our lives by your spirit in these amazing truths? Would you help us to live in the tension of some of the the silliness and meaninglessness of life under the sun, but just the epic promise and hope and meaningfulness of life beyond the sun that, that infuses itself back into our lives now. Help us to hold on to that and be different as a result. God, we trust you. We love you. We believe you. Amen.